Hello and welcome to Under the Skin. I'm doing live shows. The next one's in Twickenham this Monday, March the 4th. For full listings and info, go to russellbrand.com. New shows where I talk about recovery. Now, we're talking to Brad Evans and Henry Giroux, fantastic professors. You're going to learn so much, it's going to knock your socks off. Um, but I've got a few bits of information. Check out my YouTube channel for more spiritual videos and podcast clips. Also, let me know what you think of the forthcoming podcast. Tweet me at Rusty Rockets with hashtag Under the Skin. Or let me know on Instagram. You can tag me in your Instagram. Instagram stories if you want true Russell Brand. Also, if you've not read Mentors yet, read Mentors. Get it from a local bookshop or uh, get it on your Kindle or buy it from Amazon or listen to it as an audio book. It's a fantastic, easy little read or listen, which will introduce you to some good ways of living life differently in this complex, confusing, silly, silly world. It's a fantastic episode this week. It's uh, with Brad Evans and Henry Giroux. Brad is a professor of political violence and aesthetics at the University of Bath, or University of Bath, is it just called that? So it sounds like he's in a bath at a university. That's a, that's a, yeah, he's in the University of Bath. He's drunk. The University, surely, of Bath. You know Brad Evans, he's one of the great friends of Under the Skin. Henry Giroux is professor with specialisation in critical pedagogy at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. Now, if you don't know what the word pedagogy means, it means to do with teaching. And if you don't know how to pronounce it, it's pedagogy. And I'm glad you know that now, because let me tell you, it's a word that's going to be said a, a hell of a lot in this podcast. Not by me, but I will be saying a lot in the future, you know, when you learn a new word and think, mm, I'm going to say this now, maybe sometimes inappropriately. It's a fantastic episode. We talk about power, revolution, corruption, um, new systems. I mean, it's this is a proper academic episode. I would say you're going to learn. It's a, it's what you won't be playing this at one and a half speed. You'll be playing this perhaps at a slower speed to learn from. It's education dense. I would say these are brilliant thinkers and uh, brilliant educators, and it's a, a fine episode on a, a lighter or at least more uh, a warmer and parochial note it's brad's birthday today second of march and the first ever podcast of under the skin was with brad evans which was also released on second of march brad's birthday so somehow in spite of all the sort of academia on some sort of serendipitous spiritual level we're being guided by birthday cakes and kazoos happy birthday brad we're going to get into the episode in a minute but first i want to say uh, thanks for all your comments on last week's podcast with john ronson this is john ronson himself wrote this on twitter i've had extraordinary dms that's direct messages about this interview with me lots of people saying they've had anxiety for years and this conversation finally persuaded them to pick up the phone i can't tell you how happy that makes me that a conversation can plant those seeds and it was a lovely conversation with john very open and as i've said before vulnerable and lovely so if you haven't listened to that yet do listen to it scott berry goes like i'm listening to this walking my dogs in the hills of kentucky listening to you and john ronson wonderful to listen to you both discuss real life battles of human existence isn't that lovely walking his dogs in kentucky we're all connected all over the world people doing things makes me excited Claire Scott says also on Twitter I listened to this podcast while running around this reservoir and then she's pictured it we should retweet that it was a perfect Sunday morning 
very beautiful to run around a reservoir. Veronica Stenberg says, to answer your question on where I am while listening to your podcast, I'm in Gothenburg, Sweden, usually in front of my easel, painting and listening. Yes, I love your latest ads, especially ones for fruit and veg. Please do more of those. I will actually, Veronica. And I like to think of people just gently creating while listening to a podcast. I listen to them on runs, not my ones. I listen to other people's. Uh, uh, as you know, I love Joe Rogan, love Fern, love Adam Buxton, love uh, this Jungian life. I listen to that quite a lot. I listen to my podcast out running my dog and that. Don't even listen to music no more. Well, I mean, music's in my life. I mean, you know, sounds, melodies, percussion. But on a run, podcasts. Ashima Virowski, truly beam is the handle, says, I was truly delighted and touched listening to this podcast. John Ronson's voice is just great. I really like the pureness and vulnerability of his personal story and the stories he tells. Bravo. Well, thank you. What lovely compliments they are. Uh, time now for a quick advert for meditating. Do a bit of meditating. I can't. I try and meditate, but then I just think. Or running's my meditation. No, proper meditation. You've got to go and sit down nicely and meditate. Or perhaps even try some breath work. Look into Breath Guru, that app. And I'm not even being paid to advertise this. I've been doing some breath work. It's a trip, man. You can get right deep with it. I've had some interesting transcendent experiences through breathing. Guess who's coming on this show next week talking about transcendent experiences through breathing? Wim Hof. Wim Hof. Man, that was a extraordinary encounter. But now it's time to stuff your brain so full of information that you forget who you are and given that the self is a construct anyway that will probably be a relief to most of us unless you narcissistically are wedded to the ego which i am but let's put that aside for now uh, and join professors actual professors professing brad and henry on under the skin Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. I'm with Henry Drew. And Brad Evans on Under the Skin. It's an honour to have you both in. Just so you know, I do like an intro for you. I'll record that after. And let me tell you, it will be flattering and favourable, regardless <laughs> of what comes to pass. Well, I, I don't want you to be assassinated or investigated soon afterwards. Well, <laughs> there'll be, a, in a sense, it might be a mark of our success. <laughs> the highest honour is assassination. All right. So uh, we've already been chatting a little bit and it seems that naturally that, that what our conversation has tended towards is uh, elitism and class. Two of the tropes that are, um, I would say, governing the public space around, uh, uh, around this, this new time where it's, it feels like... Uh, you know, that you've, Henry, have boldly described it as fascism, a re-emergent fascism, like notably with Donald Trump. But, uh, but and in, you know, across Europe, there's various examples of sort of what we would call sort of right wing or nationalist or ethno-nationalist leaders. But what interests me in particular is the relationship between these new emerging political figures and the, the, the sort of common 
fuel that they seem to access of elitism and them positioning themselves as the adversary uh, of elitism. And we've already mentioned that all of us are from comparable backgrounds. So Brad is Welsh or American, I'm English. We're all from comparable blue collar or working class backgrounds. And it seems interesting to me, fascinating to me, terrifying to me that, that, that left wing parties are unable to harness the energy of indigenous working people, regardless of their racial background. It seems extraordinary to me. Why do you think that this territory is being owned by the right? Isn't that a key component in fascism? Can you unpack that a little further? Absolutely. I, and, and I think one of the most central questions you're, that you're raising here that is often lost on the left and that Brad and I have written about and talking, talked about extensively is the fact that education is central to, contra- is central to politics. You know, Marx, you know the old saying by Marx, the point is not to simply understand the world, but to change it. But actually, he was somewhat wrong on that. The fact is, if you don't understand the world, you can't change it. And it seems to me that what the left has got to learn to do is to be able to write and talk and speak with a passion and a fervor that in some fundamental way uses a language in which people can recognize themselves. I mean, there has to be this moment of identification where people can all of a sudden rethink, reshuffle, break into the common sense that often in, that often aligns them with positions that are not in their interest at all. And the right knows how to do this. I mean, the right knows how to talk about you know infrastructure, knows how to talk about dealing with precarity, knows how to talk about community, but they offer something else. They offer the swindle of fulfillment. And it seems to me it's in that moment of being able to capture something at the level of everyday life and translate it into a kind of anger and a kind of splintering and a kind of rage that reproduces a fascist politics. What's the answer? We need enemies. Uh, what does it mean to talk about the state? We need ultranationalism. What does it mean to talk about daily life? We need to appro- we need to model daily life after reality TV. There's only one person left in the island. How do we understand social problems? They're all individual problems. How do we translate private issues into public issues. We don't. I mean, that's that's a prescription for the worst kind of politics. And, it, and for the right, it tends to work. And for the left, it's, it, it puzzles them because they believe that all forms of domination are largely economic. So they can't understand what culture means at the level of everyday life to be able to, in some way, change people's points of view. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And the um, the point you make, Russell, is is a fascinating kind of position we're in, where, as you say, you have the likes of Trump or Farage presenting themselves as people, you know, leaders of the people, right? And and there's an evident elitism there. But you know, as Henry points out, I think there's a very distinct language which the right understands. When, for instance. Trump will kind of say, you know, the war in Iraq was wrong or Hillary Clinton's corrupt or Obama neglected the poor. People can kind of agree with it. They go, yes, yes, yes. And the far right also does that in the UK because the the left has historically neglected the poor people and not represented them in any meaningful way. And the problem then becomes it's very easy to mobilize that kind of sense of injustice or the sense that you are this kind of victim of history and mobilize that anger and resentment by speaking in very straightforward language. And I think one thing that the right has done very effectively over the last couple of years is, you know, there's been this narrative that the world is complex, that globalization is complex, and the, and the right has basically said, no, we can give you simple answers. We can give you very direct answers. You can be secure again. You can be great again. You can, you know, find a sense of justice and indignity again through simple reductive solutions. And those simple reductive solutions reduce it to questions of simple reductive identities. And we know the history of this kind of politics is disastrous, not just disastrous politically, but in terms of where it leads. And I think there's a fundamental difference between and you know, this notion, OK, accepting a critique of the current political moment and where the politics leads you. 
And I think that's what we need to understand as critical thinkers or people who engage with publics is it's okay or we can we can all kind of share a similar critique of the state of the world. But it's what's the agenda? Where does the politics take you? And that's where the right are clearly arch manipulators of mobilizing resentment and desire to a very particular politics, which we know is divisive and hatred and leads precisely to new forms of fascism. It feels that perhaps the problem began as the left wing parties in bipartisan democracies became increasingly centrist to become electable, notably Bill Clinton's administration in America and Tony Blair over here. And in a sense, lost their mandate, gave up their authority, gave up the lost their purpose, lost the, the, the their function was compromised and undermined by that. And in a way, from that point onwards, it seems that there's been a kind of inevitable inertia in this direction. That so much territory has been ceded. I watched uh, recently, uh, uh, like in this country, there's a sort of a populist uh, nationalist movement. Uh, a man called Tommy Robinson, super popular over here, uh, you know, it, it, among some people. And like there was a, a, some protests, like uh, because he was sort of arrested for some stuff. And the vigor, the humor, the raucousness of the protest, it had a vitality to it. That, and I felt like, you know, when you look at the faces of these men, they're sort of men that are you know, like sort of mostly white men, mostly, uh, that probably go to football, uh, working class men. And I felt like that the fact that this territory has been ceded, the fact that it's unthinkable that these people would turn up a rally for Jeremy Corbyn, that the, the, the Labour Party are regarded as metropolitan, elitist, about intellectualism, that, that, that they don't, that they no longer speak on behalf of the people. For me, that seems frightening and, and that it seems like a difficult distance to traverse you see, and I can't imagine how, that, like, what you said about education, what you've written, both of you, about critical thinking and having educated people that are able to look at information and assess it individually and independently. Uh, like, these are necessary and noble goals. But I feel that at the core of this problem is not the mendacity of the right, but the loss of moral authority from the left. I, I mean, I think to understand that, you have to contextualize it, right? And what you have to ask is, to what, to what degree has the left uh, taken seriously the collapse of civic culture? To what degree is it taken seriously the collapse of, of, of public goods? To what degree is it taken seriously the fact that all those foundations in which ideas matter to enable people to, uh, in some way, appropriate a sense of civic courage and a sense of social responsibility uh, are, are so under siege that basically you have not only a crisis of education, you have a crisis of memory, you have a crisis of history, you have a crisis of democracy, but more than anything else, you have a crisis of agency. I mean, the notion that agency is fundamental to politics somehow has left, uh, it, it, it seems to me, a left politics in a way in which they have no way of talking about what community means for working class people, because that's what you're really talking about. You know, you're talking about people who have now been defined or defined themselves as victims. They're saying, we're, we're really under siege. You know, and the real question here is all of a sudden when we hear from the left that white people, by virtue of the fact that they're white, are privileged, we have to be careful here because in some way people who are living in poverty, you know, people who basically are living in ways in which they have to make a choice between medicine and feeding their children, they don't quite understand what privilege means. And so it seems to me, how do we begin to organize people like that in ways in which we address and speak directly to those problems, but at the same time saying, look, for communities to matter, institutions matter. 
So we have to save the schools. So we have to have national health care. So we have to make sure that you have, you know, you have food on the table. And we have to do it in a way that we're not just talking about you, but we're talking about everybody. And now let's talk about the people who are taking it away from you. Because what is that? If the nation state isn't there to provide and support these institutions, then what is it? And we've seen the continued erosion and underfunding of these institutions, particularly in the UK. But remember, you know, this is one thing nobody wants, two things nobody wants to talk about. One is, if you really want to talk about fascism, talk about the, in its current forms, talk about the elimination of the social contract. Who talks about the social contract anymore? What is it? The social contract is a contract that provides provisions for people which says that those who, nobody should suffer, nobody should be poor, and nobody should not have access to medical care. That all those basic things that, don't, that allow time for time to become a luxury rather than a deprivation, where you don't have to make a... You know, my father is a working-class guy. His car broke down, he walked home. Time was a deprivation for him. I'd pick out my cell phone. Time is a luxury for, for, for me. I mean, there's a temporal moment in people's lives where they're just struggling all the time. Nobody should have to struggle over basic needs. Secondly, it, it, it seems to me there's another issue, and that is as the social state declines, what takes its place? The punishing state. So that means that all the institutions that basically once provided social goods and social provisions now get modeled after the prison. <laughs> and what, where do you go from there? Where you go from there is that an increasing number of behaviors now get criminalized. So not only does the school become a place where the police carry around you know, uh, submachine guns instead of teachers teaching kids, uh, what, we, what we also find is that being homeless is a crime. Being poor is a crime. I mean, you know, uh, not having enough food is, is somehow a crime or it's an assault on one's character to go back. You know, when you what the left doesn't understand is you have people who are suffering with troubles. They have no language to situate those troubles in ways that can understand them systemically, systemically. You know, because I'm poor doesn't mean I'm stupid. I'm poor because there's a redistribution network at work in capitalism that makes people poor. That's what it's about. It's designed to make people poor, and it's designed to make people suffer, and it prides itself on a culture of cruelty. But I think the right is also providing that systemic language, and I, and I do right. think, you know, one of the things we also need to understand is that fascism in the 21st century is very different to fascism in the 20th century, right? It's not just all jackboots, right? Yeah. And, and I think right. that, that understanding of, you know, and it's one of the things that, that why I think memory, first of all, is so important. It's what, what Henry actually calls the violence of organized forgetting, right? Within this society where it's easy to forget the real atrocities of the past, but also we need to recognize how fascism is very different in the 21st century. Now, I, I want to bring back to also your point about you know um going back even to clinton and i think one of the things is also perhaps worth thinking you know, if we're talking about this is not just you know the effective mobilization by the language of the right and the way it's led to this fundamental assault on the social state or the, or the social project more generally um but how you know with the left within this one of the things i think we have to kind of be mindful is not to just see pe the likes of trump as falling from the sky and just some radically new departure, right? I think actually what the likes of Trump represent is actually an acceleration of a lot of dynamics which are already in, in play. Yes. You know, toxic masculinity, the idea that the individual is the center of the universe, the idea that, you know, 
Thatcher's idea there's no such thing as society, right? All these kind of logics for me in terms of the, the way that these leaders are, they'd accelerate in dynamics were all, which were already in existence long before they appeared. And in that sense, you know, fascism never really went away. It's, it, it's kind of already there bubbling under the surface, but it needs certain conditions to liberate all the prejudices yeah, that it, it has. Can I say something about that? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, for me, you know, I, I've coined a term. It's called neoliberal fascism. And the point is very simple. The, the point is that neoliberalism, neoliberalism since the ninth, particularly since the 1980s, has created such conditions of misery that, that these conditions are absolutely right in many ways to begin to mobilize by capitalizing on the anger and the suffering and the despair and the precarity. Groups of people who all of a sudden now need, as Brad said, as he always does so brilliantly, need sim- simple answers. So you have something emerging in the culture. What you have emerging is you have economic conditions that are so extreme that you have in the United States three people who own half the wealth of the United States. Three people. In the United States, it seems to me that one of the figures that I just can't get out of my head, honestly, Russell, is that uh, half the population in the United States is $400 away in their savings from bankruptcy. Now, combine that with the need for enemies, with the need for blame, and all of a sudden you begin to get the emergence, and this is the fascist element for me, you get the emergence of racial cleansing racial white supremacy. It's a perfect match. So what we do is we have all of a sudden these people who are angry, people who have have very little understanding of what it might mean to solve these problems are now being told, well, I'll tell you, it's the immigrants in the southern border. It's Muslims. It's, It's, you know, white people are under siege. We need to fight this. I mean, Trump's language is a language which combines the language of neoliberalism with the language of fascism. And, as, and I think, as Brad said, fascist politics is not an historical relic that somehow exists in a, in a moment in history to never be repeated, nor can you argue that it's something that, that simply, if, if it's not precise, it mimics the concentration camps, for instance, right, uh, doesn't exist. That's nonsense. It operates in different forms under different conditions. Read Hannah Arendt. Sheldon Wolin. I mean, I mean, we know that the assumptions of fascism are always there lurking beneath the surface. What if we can't read them because we're in too much of a rush and we need you right. to quickly tell us what is the det- what are the continuous determinants where, you know, like I like my fascism to have a black oh. eagle, people marching, uh, preferably Hitler behind a podium. How what does this modern fascism share? What you know, and where is this? Where oh. is this ethnic cleansing? No, f- where is this yeah. white supremacy? Where are these uh, d- uh, defining qualities? It's a fa- it's a fabulous question. I mean, why don't we begin with ultranationalism? Right. I mean, why don't we why don't we begin with the language of racial purity? The, the language is make of ra- America great again. Make Even America, as a concept is ultranationalism. It's really about making America white again. Yes. And and remember, all fascists fascisms make an appeal Even to you a declining think that past. Bound up in that little idiom, oh. uh, "Make America Great Again," is the coded "Make America Like It Used to Be" when black people and non-white people didn't have so much power. You said that, so, but and you, but because really, that political correctness doesn't alter ethics; it alters semantics. People go, "Oh shit, I can't say that no more," but I still feel this. So this is what we say now. So you think, right? So "Make America Great Again" it's sort of it's uh, it's laden with uh, well, obviously it's, we're talking about American nationalistic ideas. Henry, like, I don't want to take a huge leap away, but why, why do we, if the nation 
state is demonstrably an idea that doesn't provide for people, is unable to be. It seems to be that the, the, the progression of the state, you know, like even when we did have centrist leftist politicians and, and we had a, a meaningful opposition to neoliberalism, it still was it still led to the conditions that culminated in Trump, which you said is merely an exaggeration. And I've always thought of him as a grotesque as what of what previously existed as opposed to an anathema or an anomaly. Uh, like the, why do we do you not think that the ideas that we should be focusing on are genuine alternatives to this type of tyranny rather than a kind of immediate nostalgia for Obama or wouldn't it have been better oh, if I, Hillary I, I don't think there's any question about that Russell I, I mean I I think there are two things that we need to take into consideration and then Brad can see what see what Brad thinks I mean my argument is first of all power should always be made visible you need to allow people to see how power works. And if it is invisible, most, most, most dictators, most forms of domination, the first rule of law is to hide power, make power invisible so it can't be seen. So people have to wake up and get some sort of sense of what's going on. Secondly, the issue is not to go back to a centrism or to a, a notion of the nation state that is utterly liberal and actually contributed in many ways to the very problems that we have today. We have to begin to understand what I call democracies in exile. How do you imagine a future in which capitalism and democracy are not seen as synonymous? How do you do that? Where do you see instances of that? Where do we see it in the day-to-day -day workings of people on the left or people who are progressive who are sharing food or talking about different forms of political participation, who are talking about something that you mentioned only abstractly, but I mean, we talk about the nation state, but look, you live in a different moment. I mean, the separation between power and politics now is unlike anything we've ever seen before. Power is global and politics is local. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in some ways you have a nation state that's completely being defunded of resources because of these global magnets and their only recourse to define themselves is through cult cultural nationalism. Yes. Right? Build bridges, build walls, expel people, get people out, define whiteness as greatness, right? Let's let's soup up the ultra masculinity. Let's talk about militarism and let's do something else. Let's make sure that we define all forms of dependency as a weakness. Mm -hmm. That's the cruelty. Yes, that's really brutal. In my mind there, I just imagined isolating that clip and oh. making it seem like you were saying that as a positive thing and a policy that we should all adopt. Make sure the dependency is seen as, as a weakness. Yes, this, uh, this abstraction of compassion, yeah. of love from the conversation is important. Do you, I wonder how radical we can be. Uh, like, you know, like even like a politician like Jeremy Corbyn, who I think is sort of generally speaking a, a positive influence in British politics, who's been sort of largely harangued and attacked by the media, who's in a sense quite a moderate person. He's like most of the ideas that Corbyn's talking about were in the sort of Labour manifesto of the 1940s and you know, that they were in government then and it wasn't seen as particularly or especially radical, just you know, generally progressive. Um, but a politician like that would n never countenance saying, look, we can't have institutions such as the monarchy. We don't need institutions such as the state. The state needs to be radically reimagined if the state uh, is already in a sense of simply a veil uh, behind which global interests are able to manipulate uh, national pop populations but the like how do we 
How do we begin to convey these ideas? How do we begin to leverage those ideas? Do you think the machinery of democracy will ever allow those kind of conversations to become movements, to dismantle the architecture upon which they're dependent? Would it be possible to have uh, politicians elected into Congress or to Parliament that would actively say, we want to decentralise power, we want to, make pa- we want to make power more visible, we want ordinary people to have access, access to power, we want to collectivise schools, hospitals, you know, like what or to how far are we willing to go with these conversations how bold are we willing to be when we see extremism masked uh, behind um, uh, uh, behind normalcy now succeeding it is succeeding you know i spoke about sort of revolu- revolution publicly like five six seven years ago and there has been a massive tidal shift ordinary people have become politicized in a way that they haven't before people are taking to the streets but it's in a sense uh, in order to further entrench the interests that oppress them in my I mean, I, I mean, the short answer is this. You can't act otherwise unless you can think otherwise. And it seems to me to think the impossible is the first step towards imagining a democracy that is never at its end. It always has to be fought for. And when Zygmunt Bauman, my friend Zygmunt Bauman, had a, had a saying. He said, look, no society is ever just enough. Ever just enough. And so it seems to me that to the degree to w- in which we can inject a sense of possibility that in which the future doesn't mimic the present, is the beginning. It's not the end, it's the beginning. I mean, for me, you have to break the notion of what, what's, what I forget his name, once, once called capitalist realism. Capitalist realism operates off the assumption there's no alternative. This yeah. is all you have. So it seems to me you're talking about three things. You're talking about the need for a new language, you're talking about the need to theorize politics differently, and you're talk, talking about the, uh, producing institutions that make it possible. And that's a struggle, and that's that's a real struggle, and it's absolutely a struggle you have to, we have to engage in, in the face of the very thing that you talked about, in the face of a tyranny right now that is so overwhelming, that we are on the brink of a kind of fascism unlike we have ever seen before. How do you not imagine the unimaginable? How do you not say we have to? F- fight in a way to create a new language with new possibilities. How, what does it mean not to believe that working class people can't do this? They did it in Chile with Allende. I mean, they, you know, I was, in, I was in Yugoslavia before the wall came down and I talked to students who said, it's never going to change. And the wall came down, it changed. I mean, I, I see youth movements all over the United States and I'm sure in England in which you see a whole generation of kids are completely rethinking what politics means, whether it's fluid gender identities or whether it's about the distribution of wealth or what it means to take power seriously. Nobody wants to be written any longer out of the script of democracy. That's a powerful yeah. message. I, uh, yeah, and I think um, one of the things in terms of, you know, is how do we speak truth to power? And I think the, to me, you talk about what is fascism. To me, fascism is very straightforward. It's the normalization of the power over life right. to the demonization and the ex- ex- attempted extermination of political differences, right? So fascism cannot abide political difference. Now, in that sense, I think, you know, we can think, first of all, about, you know, there are historical precedents with this. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of reminded there was a wonderful point you talked about, like um, Robinson and the way in which they kind of appeal to the masses. And you say it was like this visceral and it's jovial. One of the things Theodore Adorno reminded us of was when Hitler first appeared, nobody took him seriously. No, you're right. right. People laughed Thought at him. People mocked at him. Thought it was a joke. But Trump has done the same, but he's played the clown. Now, there's a reason why clown feared by children. Right, because they know they can arbitrarily select them at any given moment and make them the point of ridicule. That's what fascist politics does. It's different, as you will know, from comedy. There's a difference between somebody who's the clown and somebody who ridicules, and that's a different order of politics. But the other thing, which I think is also important, is 
fascism is the main strategic adversary of our times, right? It's very pressing, as Henry says. It's very, we're in a very dangerous political moment. How do we confront fascism? Now, to me, it seems that it works on two levels. First of all, we know fascism thrives when people are passive. Yeah. There's no objective position to be had when it comes to fascism. History teaches us that much. But fascism also thrives on people's outrage. So fascism can also feed into that outrage and become parasitic to it. So, you know, without using this kind of well-worn out term, how do we think of a politics beyond the passive aggressive? Right? What does a different politics look like that confronts fascism? And all these claims about we have to confront fascism with violence are so self-defeating mm. because it just leads us into a stupid quagmire in which fascism only breeds further. And I think that's the real danger for us. Well, I, I, the other side of this is that that's exactly what the state wants because the state sort of legitimizes violence in a way that you know allows the punishing state to grow and grow and grow. You get violent, and then state violence is actually a way to defend democracy, right? I mean, the script gets rewritten sort of badly. I mean, the other side of this is around the... How, how do you talk about ignorance? You know, let's, let's, let's be realistic. I mean, you know, when we talk about fascist politics, we're talking about a politics that does everything it can to dumb people down. I mean, whether we're talking about mass ent entertainment, whether we're talking about the authority of celebrity culture, you've got a whole network of cultural apparatuses that are aligned with fascism in a way that seems to suggest that emotion is more important than reason, that seems to suggest that dissidents are really trouble and should be killed, that journalists should be shot, that seems to suggest that anybody who speaks out in some fundamental way is, is, is a traitor. I mean, what does it mean when, when Trump says something like, you know, the, the press is the enemy of the, American, the, the, enemy of, 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 the, of the American people? I mean, this is the language of the 1930s. And I guess what I'm getting at is there are two kinds of ignorance. There's the, the ignorance of not knowing, which we have to address. That's the role we play as public intellectuals. But there's a willful ignorance. And willful ignorance is the refusal to know. The problem with a statement like uh, we can't trust the media is the fact that for the last 20 years, that particular motif belonged to the left That's right. and resonates with me. The, you know, like Noam Chomsky, like this yeah. sort of like when yeah. I was just when I was learning uh, autodidactically about yeah, politics, yeah, yeah. like that. That's that is one of the ideas that I understood. And the, the other thing about, you know, when you're talking about sort of uh, like a Hitler initially seeming ludicrous and Trump seeming somehow affable, even in for me a person who doesn't agree with him politically a person that doesn't agree with any of their sort of cultural condemnation of groups or you know all of the sort of obvious stuff the stuff that i don't even think we really need to talk about anymore surely but you know evidently we do but like uh not in this room i i still feel he has a manner of communicating that is appealing and a personal style that reaches through the sort of shash white noise and bureaucratic kind of emptiness hollowness that we're used to getting from politicians and and, and some of that is a sort of a, a, a kind of I, I don't want to call it an emotional intelligence but an emotional resonance an emotional appeal I said to someone the other day about like when I'm I spend a time sometimes around uh, like people uh, like addicts addicts are you know not always poor but often poor and in the case like uh, uh, the recent case where I was hanging out with some people in Barking and Dagenham all people with drug and alcohol issues being around them talking about their emotional problems like their emotional and uh, sort of social and economic problems is so real for them they're 
fucked today there's not like there's for them to be able to translate their individual problems as political problems and then to have the will and the the, the willingness uh, to engage with that process you know like i don't think it's a kind of ignorance and i don't think it's a kind of apathy i think that it's so much easier to access the kind of pivotal vivid visceral visible rage of uh, right-wing politics rather than to sort of even rest and reflect in a moment amidst all the pain i mean to talk about ignorance is not to suggest that the people that it seems to me who are the most oppressed are ignorant to talk about ignorance is to talk about the way in which people who have power eliminate institutions that allow people not to be ignorant that's a very different issue but i think the issue that you're talking about and one that i feel very strongly about is that I don't understand a politics that doesn't take passion seriously. I don't understand what that means, to be honest. I think it's straight, I think it's cold, it's unaffected, and I think it alienates people. And I, and I, and I, I don't, I, you know, I grew up as a working class kid. We touched people. We put our arms around people. I go to talks and I get people coming up to me saying, I liked your talk, but I didn't like your passion. I said, well, look, in my neighborhood, we touched each other. It was a sense of solidarity. You know, we, we had a restricted code. I said, how are you, Russell? You didn't, you didn't then go into a soliloquy for five minutes about how I was, how you were. We understood there was something transmitted there because there's a kind of passion that links us and allows us emotionally to begin to understand that in some way we share something. And it seems to me that those on the left, those intellectuals who do that, the Stanley Aronowitzes, you know, the, the William Kunstlers, I mean, people who are on a stage who are touching people's lives, if you can't do that, it's empty space. It doesn't work because you're not touching that side of themselves that tends to matter the most. How they feel, particularly when they're underwater, when they're struggling. Do you? Do I really want to read Marx, <laughs> Das Kapital, to somebody who's, <laughs> you know, who's dying in poverty? I don't think so. I want to say, look, I'm with you. You know, I'm your brother. I, I get it. You know, this is painful. It hurts, and we're going to deal with this. And we're going to do it together. And we're going to do it together in which we can translate that solidarity from a sense of alienation and social atomization into a sense of fucking joy. Joy to, joy to struggle. That's what counts. They don't know how to do that. The left doesn't know how to do that. And I think your, your point is absolutely spot on as well, Russell, about, you know, when Trump speaks. One of the most, I think, you know, easy cop-outs for contemporary politics is this retort to fake news right on both the left and the right and yeah. it's we used to call it propaganda yeah. right and as you say you study chomsky historically it becomes the propaganda machine which the left used to criticize and now it becomes fake news as if this is something radically new as well the question of course with fake news is that it prevents real serious critical engagement with right. social problems right you know and one of the things that you kind of say is it's not so much what trump says it resonates with some people and why does it resonate? Those are the types of questions we need to be asked. Why is that being mobilized in the way it does, in a passionate way? And why is it, you know, and all the statistics in the world don't matter in that regard. Because you could say, Trump could say immigrants are dangerous. We can reason to the hilt about immigration not being dangerous. It takes one immigrant to kill someone for it to be dangerous, right? So the statistics in that point don't really matter. What matters is how, how do they mobilize that type of politics of division and hatred in a way which is viscerally felt? And what could the left do in a more optimistic way to make politics emotion, full of emotion, full of passion, but the right types of passion, empathy, love, engagement, you know, that's a different order of politics, which still plays to the emotion in the human. I, I, and I, mean, I think there's something important in that. I mean, think of Rosa Luxemburg, you know, don't invite me. To, I don't want to be a part of a political party that in which you can't dance. Paulo Freire used to say to me, he used to say, Jeru, 
I don't like radicals who don't like good food. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, we're not just talking about emotions in the most limited sense, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about the ability to feel. Yes. We're talking about we're talking about empathy. You know, we're talking about what it means to make a connection. It's not simply rational. Even seventy years ago, Orwell was saying that the left was in danger of disappearing under the weight of its own piety, talking too much about bureaucracy and administration yeah, yeah, and yeah. not enough about joy and solidarity and togetherness and community. And in fact, the very values that the right is somehow, uh, along with rage, mo successfully mobilizing. I see. I feel that one of the things that I, I, I want to say is that there is a standard. Anybody that's presenting an alternative vision needs to have a kind of a, a moral authority and a particular particular authenticity because people need to see that we believe it's possible and people need to see that we're willing to sacrifice. I think a lot about this speech Gandhi gave where he said that, you know, that India is no point in India throwing off the British only to replicate its uh, its systems, which, you know, obviously is what it did do. Uh, because India is a company, a country of 70,000 villages and uh, each of them should be fully autonomous trading with one another. And he said one thing he said also is people are going to have to let go of their dependency on gadgets, on objects. Objects, the fetishization of consuming. I wonder when you talk, Henry, about the sort of the um, the hydra uh, uh, that looms over most of us, the power of consumerism, the power of celebrity culture, the power of reductive ideas. I wonder how we can again access the people's faith and belief in ideas such as community. I, I mean, I, I think that one of the things that people have, tend to understand very quickly is that citizenship now is the only obligations of citizenship are consumerism. The only obligations of what it means to be alive is basically to involve yourself in a survival of the fittest race with everybody else. And I think that one of the things that we need to look at is the massive degree of unhappiness that we see in the United States, an opioid crisis. We see people who are living alone. You look at the social atomization. And I think it seems to me that the degree to which we tap into more examples of people who are living in communities in ways in which shared knowledge rather than shared fears define what they do, who see the obligations of citizenship is, is in a sense as being tied not only to the production of an expansion of the common good, but a rethinking of the relationship between justice and what I would call a kind of spiritual, actually a kind of spiritual happiness, you know, an ability to share with others in ways in which your loss, your gain is not my loss, and my gain is not your loss. It's not a zero-sum gain. I mean, I think it is pretty clear that uh, we see too many indexes of both misery, suffering, and unhappiness that simply can't be rationalized in the language that you just talked about, that capitalism produces. Get ahead. You know, just consume. The mall is the new church. I mean, there's an emptiness today existentially in the world and particularly in these hyper-capitalist countries that is so overbearing, so overwhelming, that people don't have the language to break through it because they know it's not simply, it can't be normalized. You know, there's more to being human to shopping, right? I mean, how do we talk about the future with respect to this? And for me, I love to talk about youth because I, I want to raise the question, what kind of future do you want your children to have? Do you want them at five to have asthma because the world is being polluted? Do you want them to grow up and essentially be alone and work in a shit job? 
Do you want them to have friends who care about other human beings? I mean, what does it look like? What, what, what kind of vision can we imagine that is in some ways is so incompatible with the reality of capitalism? And I'm being a bit abstract here, but I think you know what I mean. The reality of everyday life that we have to challenge this. We have to develop a new language. We have to sing a different song and we have to tell a different story. Stories matter, matter because they narrate people's experiences in ways that are not just abstract. They're visceral, they're living, they're alive, they're musical, they're rhythmic. And it seems to me we need new stories. We need new stories about how people are not just simply automatons and not just simply consumers and not just simply, can, as, as I think as Brad always says brilliantly, so objectified that they can't even recognize who they are anymore, except by looking in the, at their car and thinking they're in love with their car more than their partner. Yes. And it, it, we've talked before, Brad, about the extraction of spirituality from from government, from community, from the way that we organize. It, it, uh, historically, there's, I suppose, you know, if you think of the French Revolution, it was it's sort of necessary that they had to oppose relig certain religious principles and religious institutions. The Russian Revolution and s subsequent communist project necessarily uh, uh, atheistic. How do we... And is it necessary to introduce a kind of sense of spirituality? I mean, only in the sense that terms such as fraternity and solidarity are underwritten by the idea of oneness that we see in sort of Christianity and pantheonism and, and any uh, uh, notion of faith. How can we reintroduce that there a value system where we are not commodified, where our role is not to just participate as consumers, but where we can have, uh, as we discussed earlier, a, a, a meaningful civic participation and meaningful uh, partnerships with one another yeah I, I think the there's something around first of all you know, where, this question where does radical change come from in a spiritual sense now the star point for me is there's nothing inevitable to capitalism to materiality it's constructed it's imposed upon us and I think linking it back to Henry's question about youth um First, you know, people don't need to read, as Henry pointed out, Karl Marx to find the world intolerable or to, or to resist it. Now, what I find is when you teach young people and you teach youth, they're full of imagination. They're full of spirituality. They're full of wonderment. They're full of inquisition. We kind of drag that out of them. That's what we used to call idealism. And I think in that sense, you know, Mahatma Gandhi's point when he says, you know, if we're going to declare a war on war, we have to begin with the children. And I think in many senses, children have a lot of the answers to the world. Maybe we need to listen to them better in, in a much more kind of open way. And I think that that sense of, you know, when we call what you call being spiritual, I would simply call being human. Right. Humans, are, we're not simply reductive, calculable, automated robots. We can't simply be determined just by language alone. Or, and I think in that sense, we all have these kind of spiritual feelings, which I know it's something that you've been very much interested in. It's when we talk about spirituality, it's a, it's a mistake to simply collapse it with orthodox religion. Yes. Right? As human beings, what we might call the human condition, we long for things in our life which give meaning to life much beyond this kind of capitalist nightmare, which leads to the type of neoliberal fascism which Henry writes about. I think there's something in that that we can kind of... To me, the urgency at the moment is precisely the type of future that we're creating with greater speeds and intensities. It seems like the future is increasingly becoming violently fated. And for any parent, that's a nightmare. Because you kind of think, as Henry pointed out, what is the type of earth that we're leaving for our children? Or the other question is, how do we make sure we make sure how do we make sure our children don't inherit a fascist earth? 
And I think that, to me, is a real urgent question. And that, in that sense, it has to be a spiritual revolution, which is aligned with a politics which is just simply, as Nietzsche would say, human all too human. Mm. I mean, I, 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 the, the notion of spirituality is very interesting to me, you know, because it suggests something higher than yourself. It suggests something other than yourself. It suggests a connection in, in a way that both humanizes and offers the possibility for a kind of community that exists in a different register than how we talk about communities. And so when I see people in, in, who, who define themselves like Michael Tukun, I mean like Michael Lerner of Tukun, you know, who talks about spirituality in a way that's enormously progressive. And he says that something like spirituality matters because with, it, with its emphasis on love, compassion, and social justice, it represents another dimension of the political that can't simply be reduced to the political. You know, it represents a way of reaching out that might be somewhat undefinable in the most precise terms, but it mm. operates in ways that encourages a sense of compassion and a sense of empathy and a sense of love. And even the word love, which I've always had some trouble with, right? I mean, in some well, ways. What do you mean by that? And what have got problems well, I, with the word love I, for? I think Freud did the it for hell me. <laughs> <laughs> Freud did it for me. He said, a love that's indiscriminate is, commits an injustice to itself and others. But, 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 but Don't I, let that get you down. But I, but I actually think he was quite wrong. And, 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 I, and, I, and I truly believe that. But I... Uh, I, I, what I really mean, of course, is the way in which love is appropriated commercially, you know, just stripped of any real meaning. But, I, but, but you know, it's funny, Bertrand Russell, as somebody who is now separated, um, Bertrand Russell said something very meaningful that I wrote about recently about this issue. He said, look, there are three things in my life that matters. He said, one is a life with love, a longing for love, a respect for knowledge that really matters and makes a difference. And he said, an enormous compassion for the suffering of others. That's, that's spirituality to me. That's the definition of spirituality that I find myself enormously drawn to. Because I don't care how good I am as a writer. I don't care how much I believe in a better world. If I don't have love in my life, I feel alone. I feel alone. You know, I, I, I feel something has happened to me that is dreadful. And, and we have to figure out ways to amplify that meaning so it's not just about having a partner who loves you. It's having friends, it's having comrades, it's being able to put your arms around people for Christ's sakes, right? And to say, you know, this is my, this is my man, you know, you know, we love each other, we care for each other. And that's not just about us, that's about what it means to define who we are in the world. And I wanna project that model for kids. I wanna get up on a stage and say, hey look, I'm a working class kid. You know how I was defined all my life? By my deficits. But then I flipped the script and I found out that my deficits were really my strengths and their strengths were their deficits. Tell us more about that. Def the, the deficit of strength. Yeah, well, I, I mean, when I was a kid, you know, you, people looked at you and they said you had the wrong accent, you wore the wrong clothes, you, you put your arms around people, you cited stuff that nobody knew about, like the Wobblies, you know, and history that nobody understood. You know, you pulled people over while you were taking a test, right? You played crap. I mean, you, had, you, you made money on the side that people called lawless. You hated tests. Teachers were a pain in the ass. Uh, and you had fun. You had fun. And all of a sudden, I find myself with my cultural capital going into, as, as Brad did, as I think we all did, going to college. And all of a sudden, people are using summer as a verb to me. 
where do you summer? I said, what? <laughs> what? I said, no, that's a season. <laughs> you know, and, and, and all of a sudden, I began to realize, really, Russell, very, very quickly, I had no respect for these people anymore. You know, the things that I used to think that I was told all my life, this is the best and the brightest, Yale, Harvard, <laughs> Princeton, I began to discover that this was really a criminogenic culture. Criminogenic. It produces criminals. <laughs> I mean, it produces criminals. I mean, the best and the brightest gave us Vietnam. The best and the brightest gave us Iraq. I mean, the best and the brightest gave us inequality unmatched in the history of, of probably uh, the human race. Yes, and that's like when um, rationalism and uh, logic lead us there and you know, the response of the Dadaists was to go crazy and absurd in the face uh, uh, of rational madness. It <laughs> makes me realise that uh, the significance and importance of spirituality. Earlier on in the conversation when you said, uh, you know, when you connect with someone, something passes between us. My problem problem with the atheistic model is that when you regard a human being as a mechanical unit uh, uh, that uh, is in decay and in decline and has no other substance to to it I think whilst you say Brad that you know to be human it implies love and community I don't see that argument working very well and when you say Henry that you know like it is ultimately indefinable the spiritual experience the reason why we're all one the reason why we should love one another the reason why we should be willing to sacrifice ourselves for uh, principles and what we believe in those things are always very difficult to define uh, by their very nature but I, I, my personal feeling is unless we find a way of bringing them to the forefront that we will not be able to compete with appealing tribal ideas such as this new emergent nationalism and, and, and this phenomena that you regard as a, an evolution of fascism that m may have been for a while latent but always present and now is uh, becoming once again uh, more visible. I, I feel in a sense the only way that we can countenance it, challenge it, oppose it, it, it is by reaching through the illusions that our individual nature, our material nature is secondary to these eternal principles, that we are temporary but these values are permanent and therefore they must be prioritised. That, that becomes meaningful in the sense that if you believe that the future can be constantly struggled over, then that understanding of spirituality works. For me, it's not a matter of saying that there's a... For me, when I talk about spirituality as being something that's undefinable, ultimately undefinable, what I'm saying is I don't believe it's a prescription, that, something that can be reduced to prescription, because I think that's what organized religion does. It reduces it to a text. It reduces it to a formula. There's something about the abstractness of the formula and its willingness to talk about love and compassion and justice. Think about the, the, the radical theologians, the Catholic theologians in Brazil under Paulo, who work with Paulo Freire. I mean, people who provide a model where they combine social justice with a sense of humility, a sense of love, a sense of community. I mean, this business of giving yourself in ways to suggest you're more than human. You're more than human. That it's a godlike... Buddhist Allah-like quality that we can't quite define, but in its essence, in its universal principles, lies something that always has to be constantly remembered and fought for. That's yes. what I mean by that. Yeah, I, I agree with that, that it's a, a sort of a transcendent Absolutely. principle that can't be necessarily institutionalized, it can't be reduced but has to, to be a formula. I mean, the formulas that would kill us, right? Because the formulas are, are always wrapped in circles of certainty. Yeah. And I think also your point about then how do we kind of connect this, you know, how do we foreground this new politics? 
it's not easy, right? Because the forces you're coming up against are also educational forces. Yeah. Capitalism is a pedagogical force. Right. It teaches you a particular image and narrative right. of the world, which is upheld by formidable right. schools of thinking. And in that sense, it's very normalized and it's very yeah. powerful and it's very engaging. It's very seductive. As and again, you've written a lot about being addicted to particular lifestyles. You know, it works at that level of seduction. And I think the real challenge for us is, you know, like the, the, you know, we've all kind of encountered this in terms of us working class people even trying to make a political voice yourself can be kind of demonized for saying the wrong type of politics how dare you think of politics differently to make the leap then to spirituality people are just going oh this is just wishy-washy this is nothing right where does this lead us whereas actually it leads us everywhere and i think that's the possibility of it it's you know i think a future in which it's already seems that the future is foreclosed to us truly is the end right it's the end of times and that is the very definition of nihilism a will to nothing. And I think we have to kind of, you know, we're in a crucial moment in history where the, there's never been a greater need to rethink what the politics, the political might mean. And I think unless we do it now with great urgency, then the world will be catastrophically I mean, fated. Spirituality, in its essence, boils down to something wonderful. And we saw it in 68 in a slogan. <laughs> Forgive me. All power to the imagination. Because it seems to me the imagination in some way is so central to questions of spirituality, questions in which you don't live in a circle of certainty, questions in which you're willing to be self-reflective, questions in which a culture of questioning is really an, an act of joy, and a, a pedagogical practice that matches the humility that we bring to the world in terms of who we are with an indication of what it might mean for a different kind of future for everybody. Yes. Right. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm so hooked on this kind of model. I mean, I, you know, when I when I see young working class kids in an audience and I get up there and man, I'm moving. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, You're shifting I'm, about on that stage I'm like moving. James Brown. I'm, I'm moving. I, I, I'm entertaining them. I'm, we're talking, you know, and they see a working class kid who has skills we should never have had, who is addressing issues that basically go right to the core, Russell, of their lives, who come up to you afterwards and say, Wow, wow, you know, you gave me a language and showed me something tonight that really literally feels like it changed my life. Boy, that that's politics, Yeah, man. that's cool. That's I, politics. I like that, uh, you know, I did a podcast with, in fact, maybe two, with Yuval Noah Harari, and I think he's a nice man. He talks about the uh, oncoming uh, AI, you know, like in sort of now 20% of labor jobs, etc., are going to be lost. We did a talk for his publishers at a school in uh, South East London. I was interviewing Yuval Noah Harari. I did it so I'd get the podcast interview, you know. So we're in this school and um, talking about like AI and the shape of the conversation became, these are the things that the tech world want you to learn in order that you can be utilized. And the education system needs to get in line with the requirements of the tech system. I felt very uncomfortable. And I said, I feel like we're teaching them the opposite of what we should be teaching them, that they are not just economic units. They're not just uh, little uh, ciphers of energy that can be utilized. And, um, and I said that we should be 
like as the, I'm thinking this thing, and it's a, a thought that I'm not fully able to hold. Uh, you know, at the point of the agricultural revolution, we reform our identity as peasants. The industrial revolution, we unionize and become proud shipbuilders. The technological universe, we become more and more obsolete, urbanized, dragged around, ultimately discarded. Unless people have a an alternate paradigm around which to organize what life is i don't think there is a chance for us and i don't think that it can be formulated as merely oppositional to what currently exists it has to be transcendent of it this is why my uh, i am obsessed with uh, the the language around spirituality and the ways of welding it bonding it to power and the way we organize our community when you say that thing about um, the power all power to the imagination for me it seems that that's almost a uh, the the idea of the rishis going into the realm of the imagination and pulling down new ideas pulling down new mantras pulling down new system imagining worlds that aren't yet in existence but worlds that could exist not okay my god it's seems like there's the relentless march of tech we better start teaching our kids to code oh no it seems that there's gonna you know, like we're continually responding and it feels like that we need to be opposing it seems that we need to be creating alternative models for community and like and and i feel that that we have in a way it feels to me and I, you know i'm perhaps not qualified to say this in a way we've let go of uh, of radicalism we've let go of the need to be uh, like you know, you said before, Brad, that you know we, it's going to have to be sort of pretty hardcore. This is the moment. This is the time. And I'm thinking that it's a time for a new confederacy, a, a new international confederacy, a willingness to look beyond ideas such as nation, an idea to a willingness to look almost that sort of indigenous indigenous ideas of people's value is not just as a, a what they can perform economically, what wealth they can ultimately create for others higher up the chain, and. So, and I feel that these ideas exist, but they don't exist within the way we currently organize systems. And this is my rant. I mean, I, I think, look, in, in, in the first instance, the first thing we do is you separate education from training. Training is an education. Ed education means you're educating people to live in a world in a way that allows them to learn how to govern rather than be governed. Let's begin there, right? Secondly, it seems to me you always have to talk about the question of power. You know, in what way can people assume power to have some sort of control over their lives to be able to, in a sense, define and take control of the conditions under which they find themselves? Thirdly, you can't do it alone. You have to do it collectively. Fourthly, you have to have a vision, some powerful vision that in some way moves people, moves them emotionally, moves them politically, moves them spiritually, and leads them to believe that they're more than willing to fight against. Look, you need two things. You need a language of hope, a language of critique, and you need a language of possibility. You can't have one without the other. Simply having a language of critique doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I mean, Stuart Hall, before he died, you know, we had a, a correspondence where in which he said, Henry, the left has failed in a radically uh, unfortunate way. All it says, this is wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong, everything's wrong. But he says, they, they can't create a language of educated hope. No, they can't create a they don't have a language that says, hey, look, we can do this. You know, here are the elements we need to think about. They don't know how to create new stories. I don't care about theories. I care about stories informed by theories. That means you can make them accept. You can make them rigorous, but you can make them, as Brad and I have often said, accessible. We need to talk about what it means to have a public pedagogy. We need to talk about what it means to bring cultural apparatuses together. I tell my kids, you put one foot in and one foot out. You know what that means? That means you can't just be a cultural critic, you have to be a cultural producer. 
You have to do what Russell's doing. You have to create your own radio stations. You have to do television stations. You have to learn how to do all these things as a way of being on the margins of, 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 of the social order because you can't be at the center. That's where all the power is right now. But at the same time, you have one foot in those institutions that you're trying to change that belong to them. So it's, it, there's a kind of synergy between these two movements that I see a lot of young people doing. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. And it does have to be done collectively because you remember Brad, because Brad is from this country. So like when I got like used my platform to get kind of mouthy about politics, it, it, there was a deluge of oh, condemnation. Of yeah, of it course, was sort of terrifying. Of and yeah. I didn't feel like, you know, I didn't even know Brad then actually. It wasn't until afterwards that I read a very beautiful article that he wrote sticking up for me and stuff. But like, you know, like I wish I'd known you then like you know but like uh, you know so like it's a fright it's sort of frightening and i recognized that i was somewhat at that point still driven by ego and will the kind of things that led me to want to become sort of a entertainer and a performer and I, I wasn't resourced i didn't i weren't able to reach down into the soil and say like fuck you i'm ready yeah, you know yeah, yeah. so like uh you know like you do need allegiances and you do need sort of deep principles i love that thing didn't maybe it was you that told me I'm guessing it is that all law implies violence and like you know as the minute you're saying I don't agree with this and I'm willing to oppose it the implication is and so let's take it wherever that needs to go absolutely mm -hmm. I mean I, I mean it seems to me that believing in the law unquestionably is unquestionably is the ultimate form of lawlessness mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> You're good at these, aren't you, Henry? You're good at them. Circling, like, uh, you're good at epithets and epigrams. They're coming thick and fast. I've stopped writing them down, to be honest. I'm going to put them in the link, though. Also, Jim, we should put all of these uh, authors and thinkers that are, that are being spun out into the, so people can research them independently in their own time, because what this is like is sort of, I think, getting like a, one, like a sort of a, a pharmacologically induced download <laughs> of data. <laughs> we might have to go through it slowly at some point. Make sure you're drinking enough water because it's hot in here. Most of it from the frenetic energy produced by used two's cerebellums. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I would love to talk to you about Gilets Jaunes. What do you think about that? Uh, the yellow vest movement in France that seems to be drawing from people from uh, from varied backgrounds, uh, like you know the people on the right are protesting on the street in their yellow vest. People on the left, the right are claiming it. The left are claiming it. It seems like the most interesting popular uprising since the Occupy movement to me. Tell me, do you think this is, that there's any future in uh, street activism of this kind, or do do we need to get cyber and be hacking into like into, into sort of I don't know sort of eight, eight online HQs? What do you think mm. about that? I think the the last fifteen twenty years, I've been very hesitant at street protest, and I think you look at the reaction to the Iraq War, for instance. You know, you have the biggest protest in the history of the world. Doesn't make a difference to power, right? Doesn't no make difference. a judge, no difference whatsoever. And often part of the problem with, you know, this, the, the, the recent, let's say, take into the streets, it very quickly descends into violence. And that violence becomes, I guess, part of the, you know, the unmediated outrage of people, which consists, we talk about the left and the right, they're both claiming it, because they're both trying to speak for these communities, right? So they're both trying to speak the authentic voice for, and this is, this happens with the history of the revolution, right? It's, you know, that famous thing with the communist revolution, you know, it's what, you know, it's, let me lead the revolution, right? When I, you know, Lenin could have turned up a day late for the Russian revolution, but it's like, well, you know, I'm the one who leads and authenticates the revolution, and that happens through the history of revolution. People always make claim to its authentic potential and its authentic 
authentic drivers. I taking to the streets seems to be, you know, still kind of important in terms of make, making a political point, but much of it seems tired to me in terms of, and it goes back to this this other question that we had about, you know, how do we do a different type of politics? I know you mentioned, you know, this idea between, and Henry was talking about stories and this difference between the imagination and the real. I don't think it's separate. I think humans are imaginative and we are real. You know, I think that's been part of our problem historically is to separate out the realm of the imagination and the realm of the real. And I think, you know, Surely, we, you know, there's something about old forms of protest which seem to work, but to a point, and and you can make the odd concession, but generally those concessions get quickly eroded through the mechanisms of power anyway. And I think if we're going to rethink politics in the 21st century, we need different strategies, different understandings of what the political might mean. And you talked about, like, for instance, the, the history of the, you know, the, the, the mechanical revolutions and how this brings about great social change. To me, by far, the greatest changes historically have been catastrophes. So the Great Plague fundamentally changed the idea of governmentality. You know, the birth of modernity, many people link to the Great Fire of Lisbon and destroyed that city. Look at 9-11, what nine, the impact 9-11 had, or could have had in the consciousness of America as well. And I think the danger that we're in today is what kind of tragedy is it going to take for us to have a profound shift in the political imagination? Or the other question is, let's not wait until that happens. Because, you know, so in that sense, I get the street protest and they seem to be protesting a very particular issue and an issue in itself, which is kind of problematic because it's linked to petroleum use, which in itself is very difficult to, you know, what's the complexities of the, you know, of that with a burning planet. But then I think there's there's something we have to think about politics different rather than just simply take into the streets and assume that that's going to be effective because often it only tends to be effective when it's violent and then the violence becomes something which is easily condemned as well. So I, I, I have a different take on that. Um, you know, I, I think we need to make a distinction between demonstrations and movements. Mm-hmm. And I think that demonstrations can be the basis for movements. For me, the, the yellow vest protest signifies something else. First of all, they're, they, they represent a pedagogical practice. I, I'm, I'm, I'm always interested when working class people come out and organize, even though they may not have the kind of insight around what it means to now allow this stuff to merge into a movement itself. But I, I think that what it does do is it, it does display the fact that these populist movements are a site of struggle. You know, while there are, you know, concerns about the fact that they're talking about gas and oil and all this sort of thing, you've got working class class people organizing and shutting the state down. Yeah. And I like that idea. I like the idea. Secondly, it's, it, it seems to me that the other side of this is, is how do we now develop a language in which we can say, while those demonstrations may be pedagogically useful, Clearly, as Brad is suggesting, and I completely agree with, how do they now get turned into a social movement? Which means you now have to talk about institutions and power in a different way. You know, it, it, it's not an orgasm. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's four years of foreplay, right? A movement is four years of foreplay. I mean, we. You know, When's it, the orgasm? The orgasm is the de- is the demonstration, <laughs> right? Everybody feels good. They're waving flags and you know and so forth and so on. But a but a movement, it takes a long time. You know, you need to bring people together to think about how these institutions are going to work. How they reflect back on, for instance, what was said in the in, what what was said in the, in the yellow jacket movement that we need to really take seriously and criticize. What was said to really educate those people now in ways to say, hey, look, let's let's yes, demonstrations matter, but let's turn them into a real movement where we have 
have a third political formation, one that really does speak to questions of justice and does speak to questions of what it means to address inequality and does speak to a government that has no concern whatsoever with, with your interests, whether they're right or wrong. There's a few things I want to pick up like there because, you know, it's interesting to me when working people say, yeah, we don't want to pay some new fuel tax when sort of, you know, you'd say the leftist intelligentsia would say, no, climate change is the yeah, issue yeah. of the day. And you know, clearly, globally, that is true. But what is also true, as we've discussed earlier, working people don't give a fuck because their problems are in their face and there's no time for them to think about no, that. No, no, I, I mean, look, this, this the, the question of the, the larger question, which of course is important, nobody's going to deny that. But Jesus Christ, you know, when you're struggling just to survive, you pay an extra amount of money for, a ga- for tax, for gas, that might mean the difference between being able to eat and not being able to eat. I don't have a lot of patience with radicals who seem to think that reforms in the most immediate sense never matter because you always have to think ultimately about restructuring the society. To be very honest with you, if I see a reform on the books that tomorrow is going to say 400,000 more people will have health care, and people will say to me, but that's going to reinforce a notion of capitalism. I'm going to say, so what? I know the difference between a reform and a radical movement, but my first <laughs> response is to have people eat. I'm yeah. not going to, I mean, this, you know, as, as Brad has said continuously and, and just brilliantly, I mean, violence is not abstract, it's visceral. Let's deal with the visceral violence at work here. The fact that people may not have enough money to eat by virtue of this law. Then let's talk about what it means to invest in oil and gas in ways that ultimately in the long run is the last thing we want to do because their children will probably die of asthma at the age of five. You're right that this pragmatism is quite necessary and so, yeah, it's, you know, there's nothing safer than being a radical with a utopian vision that's never going to be tested. That's called political be- purity. There's a name for it. And there's nothing worse than political purity. Why is that? Because it operates off the assumption that there are only two things in life. Me and I'm right and you and you're wrong. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on, do you think, at the moment? There's a lot of that going on, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that political purity is also results in the worst types of exclusion. And I think in terms of looking at a collective politics, what does it mean to have a discussion? And again, I know you've had problems trying to deal with this. What does it mean to speak to people who you profoundly disagree with? We don't stick them all in prison once we get into power, right? So so the point is, how do we construct a more open public conversation around this question, which doesn't retreat back into ideas of ideological purity? Because, and often that's a bourgeois sport anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it becomes a a, a puritanical idealism that has no semblance to the real lives of people. And I think- I'm not interested in leftists who are having an identity crisis. No, because that's what political purity is. It's an identity crisis. It means you have to define yourself in a way that excludes everybody else because the self-righteousness makes you feel good. Yeah, I've seen a lot of this. I'm seeing a lot of people that are active about things that don't involve sacrifice. You don't have to give anything up. I mean, it seems to me the only... Forgive me, Brad, if I say this wrong. I'm trying to articulate this properly, you know. But look, for those of us, all of us, who engage in this work, remember, in any fascist regime, the first people to go are the intellectuals. Don't kid yourself. They're the first to go. And it seems to me that when when Brad and I write the stuff that we do and you all of a sudden take on a role outside of simply being viewed as a harmless comedian, right, and are really saying important things that threaten people, that's a risk. You're taking a risk. And that risk can have serious consequences in the long run. But it's always going to work against you. Always. 
I mean, how many times have I been fired? How many times have I been denied tenure? How many times have I been in exile? 20, 20 years in one case. 20 years of my life in exile because of what I write. And I think that we have to, you have a choice. And I hate to put it so simply. You can live on your knees or you can live standing up. But if you're going to live standing up, don't think you're going to be rewarded for it. No. No, that is... Dis, that is disincentivizing. Disincentivizing. <laughs> and, and depoliticizing. And depoliticizing. Do you think um, that it is, given our access to information, uh, like, uh, I mean in the sense that we are all online, or all online, but enough of us are aware of how, how varied and, and apparently extreme our ideas are. Do you think that that's, uh, that huge social entities such as nations can succeed when there is so much diversity isn't that a further argument for greater um, divestment of power for further devolution uh, um, don't you think that we have to decentralize do you think that it's ever going to be possible for people who's that have grown up believing in the nation state to live happily among sort of gender fluid people or people that are down properly deep into their islam you know, isn't it do you think that we can be successfully corralled into a national identity it seems to me it's almost like you know like a, America has always had this sort of oh, I don't know that I'm just guessing this kind of polarity like you know like a, as evidence in its civil war this idea of a good America and a bad America like this America like the sort of utopian and the shadow America and it's sort of like a becoming sort of reinvigorated revived and, and, and I feel that why are we trying to hold together nation states when the idea is becoming oppressive causing conflict causing violence or is it something that could be let go of shouldn't people be living in little it, it, autonomous it, it, citadels it, it might be the most important thing you probably said all night right thank you you know because it seems to me that I hope we, that's not because it's the only the, and not the only <laughs> I, no because i think it's at such the far end of what brad is talking about about rethinking politics hey look this is a global world nation states are outmoded they're outmoded. And, and the only way in which they can now survive is to make an appeal to ultranationalism, racism, and what I would call gated cultural communities. That alone testifies to the degree to which they've lost their power. Mm. I mean, if we can't imagine a world that is global with federations, you know, with border crossings, open borders, people working together in some way to save the planet, people working together to distribute resources that matter, taking the wealth away from the six richest people in the world, really, if we can't address the vast uh, disparities in wealth and power, it's over. Yes. I mean, it's over. I mean, count 10 years. Yeah, the nation state will not ever uh, oppose those powerful financial no, interests. No they way. are in deep, deep allegiance, perhaps always have been from you know, post-colonialism. You all know. What, what happens when the IMF decides in the wake of the economic crisis, it's going to start taking money out of the bank accounts of people in Greece? Literally, just taking money out of their accounts. I mean, you really want to talk about global power and how it works? What, what do you say to, you know, what, what happened in Spain with Podemos? who all of a sudden saying, look, we're going to fight this global entity. We're not going to give in to this economic uh, disaster. And all of a sudden, they, they not only gave in, I mean, they compromised even more. Here's the key for me. Why is it we have an a crisis in economics, but we don't have a crisis of ideas? Why is that? How do you explain that? How do you, I mean, people say neoliberalism is dead, right, because of the economic crisis. I say that's bullshit. Neoliberalism is on steroids. You missed it. 
because it still is able to legitimate itself in the minds of people who believe that there was no alternative to it. Yes, yes, yes. Right? And also that point about, you know, power being global and politics being national stroke local. I think the worst we can do is localize it further and believe that we'll be safe. Yes. Right? yes. Be- as if power is some- somehow going forget- to yes. forget about you. Right? Yeah, yeah. I-, I think, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And-, and as the late Zygmunt Bauman said, you know, there's no 20th century solutions to 21st century problems. Right. We need to think in more expansive global terms, more because, you know, the, the problems of the 21st century are global by definition. And whether we like it or not, power flows across borders and people less so, but power does. And I think that's kind of the, the situation we're in. If we simply believe that the nation state's going to rescue us, we're sadly mistaken. And I think because the environment doesn't care for national borders, terrorism doesn't care for national borders, all the problems, war doesn't care for national borders, you know. And I think that's the situation we're in. Of course, we need to recognise, and this is not about creating a universal model for the world. It is to understand the subtleties and the brilliance and the beautifulness of local differences and it's not about homogenizing the world that's a different project it's about recognizing that people should be self-governing locally but have a global ethics that realizes that we live on a shared planet together and it's a precarious planet and how can we create an ethical sensibility which is connecting people which doesn't seek to destroy difference which is what fascism does i like that that sounds good hold on a minute write that down so there's a local democratic power but there is a globalised sense of ethics or edicts that we can sort of follow and commit to. I suppose as soon as you start to establish an ideal, though it requires a degree of government and probably by your own diagnostic tools, somewhere along the line is implicit violence. You know, it's not like I want to oppose this idea as soon as it's emerged, because I think that's fantastic. I feel that that's precisely what's required, that, that people wouldn't care so much about immigration or attacks on fuel or uh, enmity among the people that share the same social class as them if they had a, a real uh, meaningful engagement with the power in their lives. Well, there's an important point in terms of, you know, I think one of the, the best books ever written on violence was by Franz Fanon, and it's called The Wretched of the Earth. And I think the lesson of Fanon, it's not why does a revolution happen, but what happens the day after the revolution? And Rav Fanon says, you know, often actually everything changes, so everything remains the same. We go back to the old modalities of power, the old structures of power. And also in that process, we author new forms of violence, right? So... And I think that's the real difficulty of history. What can appear a radical movement in one period can be very entrenched and puritanical and dominating and hierarchical in another moment. And the the challenge for us is to recognise there's no end state which is utopia. It's a constant struggle to retain ethical integrity. Ethics is not something which you have in kind of a perfect state of affairs. When you walk into this room, there's a, you know, there's a constant ethical interaction. And in every conversation, every shared engagement, you have to be aware of those ethical sensibilities. And I think that's the, the understanding of the political which I would cling to, is that it's, not, it's a process. And a process in which you always have to be mindful of shamefully compromising with power. The lurking potential for fascism, for any revolutionary movement, for itself to become violent. So to move towards a different ethics, of course, has its dangers. And we have to be constantly vigilant and alert to those. 
Yeah, I suppose because all systems that are manifest must pass through the consciousness of human beings or indeed be born in the consciousness of human beings, depending on your uh, view of metaphysics. And so they are subject to the flaws and frailties inherent within us all. And the gravity of corruption and its ability to reinstate, even as we try to build utopias, implies that we do, again, once more, to return to my idea that the place from where we will derive the principles that that could ultimately govern us is from a kind of shared and perennial global folk religious tradition where we find in common principles perhaps this can be our starting point of uh you know uh, the the each group is fully autonomous our leaders are operate from a position of service no one has the power to remain uh, in a position of power you know like whenever i've been involved in actual democracy it's fucking slow isn't it have you done any actual democracy it's so boring everyone's allowed to talk it takes ages no one agrees with you you have to sort of participate in a way where your charisma is temporarily suspended just to be fair Henry just to be fair you can't just battle your way through with a cannonball of glorious charisma that's not going to get anything done yeah it, it, it really is democracy is messy and it's kind of a pain in the ass and the alternative is fascism <laughs> and that's sort of in a sense the argue the, ca- the capitalist argument that this is the you know that the, there is no alternative to capitalism but democracy is the genuine alternative and it's an alternative well, the, that we've the, been denied the, for a long while the argument that they make that is absolutely wrong is that capitalism is the antithesis of democracy Capitalism is the antithesis. It's the antithesis. And that, to me, is the stranglehold that people simply can't work through. Certainly liberals, they can't work through that. I mean, what's at stake here in terms of what Brad's talking about? What's at stake is the possibility of realizing or recognizing that there there are conditions that can be created in which people in some way can assert their agency, though in different ways they can assert it. You know, they can in some way, be, they, can, they can learn how in some way to, you, you, you can pr- propose for them something that's meaningful in order to be critical, in order to be transformative. You know, that's a very important understanding, meaning that we're, at least if we give people the opportunity, if the conditions exist, for them to make the choices that impact on their lives, that's the beginning of what it means to talk about a community that's involved in shared responsibilities rather than shared fears. Remember, you live in a society and I live in a society that operates off the assumption that social costs are reliability, that all activity basically can operate in a way where it doesn't have to deal with social costs. That's a philosophy that eliminates what Brad would call the, the grammar of, 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 of ethics. The grammar of ethics is so downplayed, so disowned, so disdained that we have no way of talking about collective social responsibility in this world that you've presented to us, this so, sort of ongoing utopian collectivist world, right? The question of social responsibility is paramount. It's absolutely paramount. How do we redefine that? What does it mean to implement it? What organizations safeguard it? What institutions have to be developed to make sure that people have these skills, have the intelligence, the analytical ability? Uh, where, is the, where, is that, where are those places where joy enters into this? Where does community become an asset rather than a liability? Where do other people become an asset rather than a liability? Where does difference become an asset rather than a liability? How do we do this? These are important questions, and, but they're questions that at the same time force people into the position of thinking outside of a model Model that we now live in that is the antithesis of all of those yes the antithesis yes this is clear this is clear to me 
Thank you very much, both of you, for the torrent of information, the tundra of data. It's so, so fantastic to see you both together. But now there's, there's obviously more, you can teach more than we can learn in a limited amount of time. Let's talk about some of the things that are available for people listening to this that want to learn more. What, uh, what, like I'm holding in my hand Henry's new book, uh, American Nightmare, Facing the Challenge of Fascism. Presumably many of the things that we've discussed today are covered in here. Yes, yes, yes. You don't care about promoting this book? Oh, I do care about promoting that book. I, I, that is, that's There'll what be a publisher somewhere who'll be very upset if you don't. Oh, no, no. I, I know I, I love this book because I think for me it's a culmination of 40 years of work in which I'm trying to fundamentally figure out you know, what it means to combine the pedagogical and the political, what it means to make education central to politics, what it means to provide a discourse that in some fundament, fundamental way is accessible and moves people and gives them an understanding of the threat that we face and what we might do to address that threat. So that, that book for me is a culmination of what I've always talked about, and that is the, 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 the merging of a language of critique and a language of educated hope. I like this. When you two collaborate, how does that happen then? Like you're collaborating on a book. How, how do you do it? Like, how can you collaborate on a book? Right, you have a type. Mm. Now well, I'll do a bit. No, I, I think with... Because you've collaborated on yeah, several books. I, I think with a lot of confidence in the other person that they will respect your work very organically. So you allow the other person to write into your sentences, that you allow them to speak with you in a way in which you are not concerned whether they cut a sentence out or not. And, and in a way in which you have trust in the person that they will respect the ethical integrity of the project. Simple as that. So that you, you're, yeah, the, you, you can collaborate because mm -hmm. ultimately you believe in one another and have faith in one another, mm -hmm. love one another. I mean, we, we actually finish each other's sentences in books. Mm -hmm. We've done that. Do you? Oh, yeah, we've done that. I mean, we first we talk about an idea. I have never disagreed with Brad. I mean, I, 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 Brad basically educates me constantly. And, and, and for me, the, the collaboration is not just writing. It's about learning something. I've always in yeah I've always enjoyed uh, like one of the things when Brad and I have done some sort of like TV work and stuff I sometimes think I'll just ask Brad any question now yeah yeah, yeah like, exactly. I'm making up almost a muscle and Brad's always got sort of a lucid and well researched answer so well, I'm what gonna, that implies is he's got access to absolutely no no that's that's absolutely true for Brad no well question. while I'm red I'm going to um. Yeah, one of the books that I'd like to plug is my latest atrocity exhibition book. But I don't think it's because of the book. It's because you two both provide a wonderful introduction. So. Yes, I remember writing mine and thinking, this will sit well alongside Henry's introduction. Perhaps we should start uh, collaborating as a triumvirate, just passing around a manuscript, Absolutely. adding words here and there. No, I, no look, I, you know, we, we, we talked, I, I had mentioned the Russell Earlier about um, uh, my friend from the Strokes, which is now Julian Casablanca. Yeah, you did a brilliant I, I, video with him. Who is now writing an introduction for my upcoming book, The Terror of the Unforeseen, right? And to be honest with Your you, books all got scary names, didn't they? Atrocity exhibition, I, I, I know, Terror of the Unseen. They, Fuck you! There's a zombie yeah, coming. Zombie capitalism. Zombie oh, capitalism. Yeah, you've done that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but what what really amazes me is the power of popular culture as a pedagogical practice. I mean, Russell, look, he, he, Julian interviews me. It goes in Ro Rolling Stone, the interview, right? Mm. It gets 500,000 hits or something, more than anything I've done in my career, uh, uh, 10 times over, which means politically, 
it's reaching a huge and enormous amount of people, but it's doing something else. It's saying that entertainment isn't just about entertainment, it's also about politics. That's a really important idea. It's also about politics. And anybody who believes that entertainment isn't a teaching machine is full of shit. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I, so there's been a sort of, uh, there are these, uh, <laughs> there's these assumptions like, you know, religion doesn't belong in color. Uh, education doesn't belong yeah, yeah, in popular. Yeah, 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 They're yeah, trying yeah. to extract anything except a sort of nihilistic, individualistic, masturbatory yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but let's of give it. A, let's give it a different title. That's the mechanism of depoliticization. Ah. That's what it does. It depoliticizes you. Russell Brand is a comedian. He has nothing politically to say, and he shouldn't. Giroux is a, a professor. Brad is a professor. They're not being objective. Uh, now they, no they, one's got yeah, any they, right they have to multiple talk. languages for this right when all of a sudden Julian gets up and, and interviews me and all of a sudden now I, I can't read an interview where somebody said well Giroux asked you this wow that was fabulous mm-hmm. right so Julian who is imminently political and an incredibly sharp I think realizes that there is something complicitous about not using your position in popular culture I felt that, and a bit. not and not making that using that position to actually educate people in ways to say you stand for something. I'm funny. I'm humorous. I'm creative. But I'm also here, man. Yeah. I'm on the planet. I'm not divorcing <laughs> myself from the planet. Sorry. But but I think you can obviously relate to this, Russell, and that that kind of the the response that was leveled at you is not incidental, right? Right. It's. You, you were say, trying to do something meaningful and you certainly recognize the moment you try to say something meaningful, that's when power listens right. and that's when power responds. That's fabulous. You know, power responds. Power's not going to pay attention to you if you've got nothing meaningful yeah, to say. Right. <laughs> so in that's that right. sense is the moment you start pushing the wrong buttons and asking, you know, it's not about asking the right questions, it's asking the wrong questions. When The moment you start doing that, then, you know, and people in the public limelight already have that audience. The moment that happens, and there's a reason why historically people like John Lennon are shot or, you know, and all the great tyrannical regimes fear the artists, the people who have free expression, because they suddenly realize that they can use that public position to do something meaningful. And that's when power pays attention. Yes. Okay, right. That's well, fabulous. Take a couple that of really years off. That really is fabulous. It really is. I, I mean, I mean... Russell steps out, says something enormously important, and all of a sudden, power comes on, comes down on him like an avalanche. Yeah, that's right. right. That's and, when you realize it's there. You, you realize, realize it's there, there but then. it's not only that. You realize who your friends are. You yeah. realize who the people are who support you, and you realize who the people who don't support you. I mean, it, you know, oh, you write these books. Why do you write these books? I mean, you know, I, 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 we all get the same thing, right, in different ways and with a much smaller audience, but... You know, you know, when I when I was at Boston University and I got denied tenure, the president of the university had me come in and wanted to talk to me. And he started off by saying, he said, uh, you know, I, I hear you're a great teacher. Why do you write such shit? <laughs> and then he said, look, I'll make a deal with you. I'll, if, I'll, if you allow me to be your, your mentor for two years in philosophy, science, and education, I'll maintain your current salary. And at the end of two years, we'll reconsider your tenure. And I turned to him, and you won't know the reference probably, but I said, what do you want to do, turn me into George Will? It's a conservative commentator. But that's what power is about. It's about both threatening you and seducing you. They're always in tension with each other. The seduction, mm. right, and the threat. Yeah. Hey, Russell, you want to keep your career? Mm. Uh, you know, let's, let's be cool, right? Let's, let's moderate the talk. Russell, you're going a little too far. Oh, I like the new act, Russell, but, you know, there's a way to really make that... More, more popular by being less political. I mean, it's it's, it's ongoing. The is seduction it, of power is ongoing. 
it's extraordinary how automatic it is also because I feel like the people that have literally said those things aren't CIA operatives. That's a, absolutely, you know, that's they're, right. They're, just, they're people just carrying on with their lives. And like Chomsky memorably said to Andrew Marr, who when he, Andrew Marr was going, well, I've not been inculcated and yeah, indoctrinated yeah, yeah, by yeah. some system. And Chomsky said, if you hadn't been, you wouldn't be in that chair. It's not like it happens consciously. You've been, you've been yeah, through these yeah, institutions yeah, yeah, and yeah, now here yeah. you are asking those questions. Yes. Not to, you know, I'm sure Andrew, Andrew Marr's a lovely man. But my, but my point is, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's curious how uh, insidious it is. And, uh, yeah, the, the partnership of the threat and the seduction, is yeah. uh, both of those felt very, most visceral. I remember the seduction and I remember the threat. And at the moment, what feeling sort of, you know, it, it, in a kind of exile of my own, sort of learning and thinking about how, how do I participate in that conversation again in a way that feels, you know, like there is no way for it to be safe right. as we're, we're demonstrating, but at least is grounded. It's an interesting process. It's an interesting process. And I'm sort of looking at the language. I'm looking at how, you know, like what I could do differently, how it could, you know, how, what I can sort of learn from that situation. Another thing I just want to quickly bring up, because I think it might, uh, I'm interested in what you think. I met Candice Owens and like uh, do you know who that is she's uh, uh, right okay she might be below your radar she's like uh, uh, African American woman that uh, sort of politicized Kanye for a moment in a kind of very neocon sort of uh, neoliberal uh, like some of the things they say it's like you know slavery don't matter type stuff it's ages ago like really sort of like so anyway like the stuff she says there's loads of it it was a great I did a podcast with her it was great because it was mostly go, me going oh fucking hell no you, that's ridiculous and her like and but well, well the thing is curious even though she was like you know right wing person on a human level she was lovely and it was almost like I felt this is irrelevant. Like there's a kind of a show. It's a show. There is a person that is behind this. On the individual level, I felt that there was a capacity and ability to sort of nullify it somehow. That no one really believes this. Oh, like isn't the kind of don't we ha those of us that believe that the world can change? Don't isn't there a sort of an, an ulterior belief that human beings are beautiful? That at their deepest level, like if people can. Pass through the the various layers of biochemical selfishness and cultural indoctrination. What is underneath is beauty, a beauty that is worth saving, a beauty that it is possible to reach. Isn't there a, a, a genuine optimism in this kind of progressive? I, I, I think that's both interesting and dangerous. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I think at one level it's sometimes easy to be seduced by human qualities that divorce those qualities from politics itself. Right, I mean, it's sort of like saying Hitler really was a nice guy. I bet he was. He was a nice guy, and he had a beautiful—he had a beautiful picture window there up in his bunker. He was—I met him, and he was really weird. We had a laugh. Right, to right. Be, right. But, uh, but, probably, but at yeah. the same time, there's something else at work that you're suggesting, which I which I like, and and that is, you don't begin by shaming people because of their politics. If you if you respect their humanity, the key here is to try to understand who they are in light of what they believe and how they act. Yeah, that, I, that's a different kind of. I mean, I, if somebody comes in as a right wing, I'm not automatically going to say this person's an asshole, and therefore I don't want to talk to them because I'm so self righteous. Mm -hmm. I can't learn anything here, or we can't have a dialogue. At the same time, I'm not going to limit my perception of that person in terms of the human qualities that are expressed from the kind of 
consequences that they produce. Yes, I understand what you're saying. I, I just suppose I have a faith that the realist part of a person, the, the essence, if such a thing is, you know, I believe that there is such a thing, it, it is beautiful. And like, and again, this is a sort of a, you know, like if you take the spiritual principles simply, uh, uh, literally, you know, that the redemption is available for everyone. That there's, a, I mean, if we believe that we are right, that we're correct, that there are certain principles that we ring fence, that there are certain things that we're certain about, you know, like it's not dangerous for us to communicate with right wing people because we know absolutely that we don't agree with the prosecution of minorities. We absolutely don't agree w- with uh, the, you know, many of the ideas, vilification, condemnation, corruption, elitism. You know, we, we're, we're aware. You know, we, we're certain in that. And you know, for me, like, that's interesting what you've said, Henry, that, that, you know, you have to be careful because there are like, a, you know, I feel like I could talk to Nigel Farage. I met Donald Trump and he, he was kind of nice, you know, like, you know, like it was ages ago. Like, you know, he seemed like a, an all right person. Like, you know, like, uh, obviously, we didn't know the way that things were going to pan out at that point. Uh, I, I feel like, you know, that... If we are certain about what we believe in, that we can afford to approach people with a kind of a, a sort of an open, optimistic, uh, almost uh, a, a non-condemning approach. Brad, have you got anything on that? Well, I see I, you've done a diagram. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's there's many different forms in which violence manifests itself. Now, some people, depending on, for instance, you know, particularly racial qualities, will encounter very strong direct verbal attacks and verbal violence. But there's also a polite violence. By far the greatest violence I've encountered intellectually has been polite. Yes. People saying, just, well, just this is just a game, or play the language with this. or And for me, behind a mask of politeness can be a great deal of institutional violence that kind of manifests itself. Now, I listened to the interview, and, you know, talking about spirituality I thought you were almost saintly in your kind of response you know and how and I could see the kind of you were kind of going do you really think this do you really believe this you know and and I think part of the thing I I, I think she truly believes it right and and I think there's something then in that we have to kind of unpack and but also you know what do we do with those kind of you know figures that we encounter in society who are clearly playing a game because they're seduced by power and I think that's where it is. It's, you know, how do we counter those kind of strategic games that people play to become seduced by power because they have a particular understanding of power and a particular understanding of power based on the individual and an individual conception of power where, as Henry says, my gain in, in a podcast, winning a battle of an argument means I'm getting one over you and therefore I'm right and you're wrong. We need to have a different conversation. And I understand that's what you were trying to do in that conversation was try to say, well, can you not even just see the world from a different perspective slightly, right? And I think that's, you know, for some people, the answer is no. There's an, yeah. a complete unwillingness to do that. I, I also think that, and maybe I'm terribly wrong, but I, you know, I, we all want to be humble. We want to be, we want to exercise a degree of humility with people. But I, but I think that we have to be careful about reducing their agency to a notion of politics that stems on giving them the benefit of being so polite that we might miss the full nature of their own humanness, which sometimes is quite evil. <laughs> it's quite evil. I, I mean, um, I, I, I meet too many people in academia, you know, who smile and engage in passive-aggressive behavior that is so pernicious 
that if, if I were to judge him on the, the relationship that we are having right now, you and I talking alone, I would completely miss the, the fullness of how their agency plays out. So that's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about the fullness of their agency mm-hmm. and not just, I'm certainly willing to give them a doubt. And I think you're absolutely right. I, I think if we don't, we injure ourselves and we injure them. We become self-righteous and we shame them. And, and pedagogically and politically, I don't think there's any room for that. But at the same time, we have to be careful. At the same time, we have to understand how agency works by not separating itself from an ethical sensibility. I'm not separating itself from questions of social responsibility. Being nice doesn't mean anything if somebody is, a, is, is putting people in gas chambers. Mm. I mean, right? Mm. I mean, or putting black people in prison. You meet these, I mean, go to, go to any ruling class club and they're all like so gracious and sweet. And, you know, I mean, they're criminogenic in their actions, some of these people, right? I mean, I mean you know, I mean, the damage that they cause, the destruction that they produce, I, I just can't let that evaporate in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an understanding that there's a universal humanist that we should recognize that begins and ends there. It begins there, but it doesn't end there. Mm. Well, that's good. Good speeches you're doing. I'm really glad we're recording this. Well, Henry, Brad, it's been a wonderful. I feel very privileged to have had a sort of um, dual lecture and to be able, been, uh, able to participate in it to a degree. Look at this. This is the condensation on the windows of our uh, febrile minds and our taut and virile intellects. Thank you so much uh, for coming on Under the Skin. I've enjoyed it enormously. I think it's the longest one we've done, and I know it could have gone It on was longer. fabulous. I mean, to be very honest with you, I, I thought the questions were stunning oh you're beautiful thanks very i much. thought they were stunning i i know interview on its own uh succeeds with just answers Never. <laughs> <laughs> i'll try and do mine with just no, answers yeah, i mean but... <laughs> no, it's a dialogue i mean yeah, yeah, really, it's yeah. got to be a I dialogue mean, come on brad join in don't say it's just answers it's always a privilege or something. <laughs> thank you so much Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Brad and Henry. I've become firm. Well, I love Brad already, but now Henry, I absolutely adore him. I've been continually texting the chap. He's lovely. You might want to check out his thing that he done with Julian Casablancas out of the Strokes. Have a look for that. That was we looked at that as part of our research. Remember to let me know what you thought of this podcast on Instagram. Tag me at True Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with our under the skin hashtag. Wim Hof is coming here next week. Between now and then, you need to familiarise yourself with Wim Hof if you don't already know who he is. The Ice Man cometh. Oh my God, he's not a normal person. He's absolutely fascinating. You're going to love him. Go and get mentors, please. Uh, Go and watch Rebirth on Netflix, please. Other than that, just be completely free. Uh, Subscribe to this podcast. Rate it wherever you listen to your podcast. Go and give it five stars and give me a little compliment. Sometimes when I'm feeling particularly down, I read them. So uh, do put a uh, kind thing like, Hey Russ, I've given you five stars, look. Does that make you feel that life has more meaning? Is being the father to two daughters not enough for you? Is having regular transcendent connections with conscious forces that are clearly beyond the personal not enough for you? Do you need to see five stars on a phone? Is that what it's come down to? Uh, So yeah, subscribe and mark it and share it. Remember, there's more live shows coming up. You can come and see me. Go to russellbrand.com for uh, date listings and how to get tickets. I'm doing like five or six shows before I go to America and to do some podcasts over there and some other work. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. I love you, don't I? See ya.